0: This is Rings of Hell, a Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history, impact, and possible future of the Olympic Games
1: in Los Angeles. LA is not a sanctuary city. Um, I think we're one of the few cities that are not the major cities, uh, we're like one of the largest major cities in California that is not uh, even symbolically. Um, but I, I do think that um, we fall short because there's uh, especially here in LA, there's like a, you know, uh, the mayor especially doesn't want to burn relationships with the police and um, Chief Beck, which you know technically the LAPD claims they're not, um, they're not transferring people to ICE anymore, but they do it through the Department of Justice, so they throw, you know, so there's still collaboration going on, and it's not direct, but it's more informal and. In, I'm gonna put the information here and it's up to you to, to grab it if you want to.
0: Episode seven, City of Sanctuary,
1: the 2028 Olympics and the threat to immigrants.
2: So um, just as a quick intro, uh, on this episode of Rings of Hell, we're going to be talking about how the Olympic Games relate to immigration justice, both in general and in LA specifically. Uh, and to start us off, uh, just some quick introductions. My name is Anne. I am one of the uh, co-chairs of the Olympics LA uh, Coalition and Working Group.
1: I'm Jack. I'm a co-chair of the Immigration Justice Committee of DSALA. Uh, I'm Luis. uh, I am the uh, communications uh, for uh, IJC and the DSALA.
3: I'm Steve Ducey. I'm an organizer with the DSALA, the chair of the Prison Abolition Committee.
2: Great. Um, So just to start us off, you know, uh, so the title of this episode is City of Sanctuary. We'll get into a little bit more what that's referring to later. But to start off, so I was hoping Jack and Luis, if you could give us a, a quick Definition of, of what is a sanctuary city? That's something that you know we've been hearing a lot about and and talking a lot about in terms of uh, establishing various like nationwide movements for immigration justice. Uh, in, you know since the twenty sixteen election, but what is a sanctuary city from a technical standpoint? And then you know more broadly, what should it mean, or what does it mean in spirit to you?
1: Well, s- sanctuary. The term sanctuary, uh, technically, started. Um uh I think um the nineteen eighties nineteen eighties, yes. Uh enables to uh, you know, for undocumented immigrants to be able to navigate and, and you know, go to the hospital or, you know, go to school without feel uh, feeling like they're gonna be deported. So that's where the term uh sanctuary comes from. Or you know, originally sanctuary is not that not a very progressive policy to begin with. Um so I think people have this idea that it's like a haven for immigrants. It just means are allowed to access the services without deportation, um, yeah, and also you know, I think if it comes down to like rebranding the word and what sanctuary means, because you know, um, we know like the California quote unquote got the theme of sanctuary state, but you know, there's still ice presence, there's still border patrol, there's still police in LA, um, so. We got to redefine and go further, I think, when we talk about what sanctuary means and, and what we need sanctuary cities to be and a sanctuary state to be. Uh, I think right now what we have is very symbolic and it's not really like a um, something that really sticks and helps fully helps immigrants and people of color in general.
0: And I think what Luis was implying is that there's two definitions of sanctuary. One a historical one coming from the activists and um, originating in the church and speaking about sanctuary in terms of refugees uh, fleeing um, state violence um, and then linking that to the first Christian movement of when small Christian communities had to flee in the Middle East um, from the Roman Empire Um, and then today when they continue to flee um, in or mostly from Central American countries. And then the legal definition, which the state and the city can't really do because the federal government controls all immigration policy. So even with um, any reforms that the state or the city tries to do, they're really uh, beholden to the federal government and can't in really do anything about that. Um, And sanctuary, they claim sanctuary only to the extent that they say that we aren't doing anything. It's the federal government. So they try and put all the blame on the federal government, but then they themselves will collaborate um, even informally.
2: Yeah, so I think the, those are some really great points in terms of um, you know, should sanctuary status be the thing that we're holding up as kind of the, the bastion of, um, of immigration justice and, and looking at the shortcomings. So even given that context, um, is LA a sanctuary city? Um, in what ways has LA made even any symbolic steps to um, protect immigrants and in what ways is LA falling short?
1: LA is not a sanctuary city. Um, I think we're one of the few cities that are not the major cities. uh, We're like one of the largest major cities in California that is not uh, even symbolically. um, But I I do think that um, we fall short because there's, uh, especially here in LA, there's like a, you know, uh, the mayor especially doesn't want to burn relationships with the police and um, Chief Beck which, you know, technically the LAPD claims they're not um, they're not transferring people to ICE anymore, but they do it through the Department of Justice. So they throw, you know, so there's still collaboration going on and it's not direct, but it's more informal and I'm gonna put the information here and it's up to you to, to grab it if you want to. Um, so that's the way it kind of works. So I think that's kind of like what's holding us back and I, I think it, ha- it has to be, you know, ICE has to be abolished, and and I think police as well, and that's like a longer step, you know? So I think the two, they're not separate from each other because police terror, even though if you get papers and you become a citizen, you still have police terrorizing people of color in ways that end separating families through felonies and, 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 and through unjust sentencing and, and in its own way that's almost linear to what it's like to be undocumented. So they use. So that's what I would think it would take for us to be a a true safe city for immigrants and people of color and people in general who are, who are poor.
2: I know, Luis. You mentioned earlier uh, SB 54 the sanctuary state bill, um, and that's you know I think one of the reasons that a lot of people assume that LA is a sanctuary city, right? Is this idea that California is a sanctuary state, therefore most of the major cities, especially the progressive ones, must be uh, must be sanctuary cities. Um, what are some of the other reasons you think that people sort of have this assumption that LA must be a sanctuary city? I'll volunteer one other, which is that our mayor, is <laughs> you mentioned, is very reluctant to implement this. But the way that he kind of talks about LA, he uses the phrase city of sanctuary um, a lot to describe what LA is, which, uh, you know, to our minds is uh, if sanctuary city is largely a symbolic, um, if inadequate term, city of sanctuary is. Not even symbolic, it's essentially meaningless and misleading. Um, so, I'm wondering if you could talk to some of the other ways that, you know, that maybe LA uh, and Mayor Garcetti in particular, or other, you know, leading figures and, and elected leaders in LA um, have claimed to be doing some of this work and, and what's actually happening.
0: I, I can speak a little bit right now of the sort of geographical implications of the, of Los Angeles and the sort of the politics behind the geography. Because although the state of, of California has passed SB 54, really it's the LA County who's in certain ways stronger than the state in making arrangements with the federal government than the state of California because they hold such a huge Control of essentially the biggest population in in California, and have a very very limited number of people who uh, control that. Um, I forget what it's called the, the LA County County Su- Board of Supervisors. Supervisors? Yeah, they yeah.
2: have. I think they're like they're some of the most powerful elected yeah. officials in the nation.
0: They don't get hit like the city of mayor or like uh, California got.
3: Yeah, they don't get nearly as much attention, and, you know, L.A. County is one of the biggest populations, you know, in the country. I mean, bigger than most, a lot of states. Uh, The L.A. County Board of Supervisors, there's five of them, Uh, and they oversee, you know, about 10 million people. And what I think a lot of people don't understand about the Board of Supervisors is that they effectively operate as both the executive branch and the legislative branch for the county. Um, So, you know, the the amount of power that they have is tremendous and the amount of attention that they get is very small.
2: And the amount of money, too, to put that into context, they control. So the, the budget for the county of Los Angeles, I think, is bigger than like all but... A very small number of states, yeah. uh, and the number of constituents. So there's five five supervisors uh, for the entire county, which means that each of them has more constituents than most, uh, like most Congress members.
1: Yeah, and you know, I come from an immigrant justice background, and I've been organizing immigrant youth since like 2009, and one of our main targets has always been the of supervisors. Um, because they're the ones that decide whether we work with the sheriffs, so immigration works with the sheriffs, they're the ones that decide on all the budgets. Um, I think of why it's so hard for LA, to, uh, I think it's for us to have this um, sanctuary or we want to implement all this is because we don't really have political power as in people power. Um, I think it always goes down to like, politicians take all the credit, all they have to do is just say a few words, come out and support and then people kind of don't pay attention. Um, They kind of just get comfortable with that. And I feel like it's, you know, especially when you're organizing immigration from a leftist standpoint, you're not only, you know, you're you're not only organizing against, um, you know, Republican attacks, but you're organizing against like centrist liberals who, uh, who claim to be on your side, but then turn around and and really like pass these budgets and, and 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 that really still support ICE and still support uh the, the police and in in, in uh, collaboration with the sheriffs and, and and ICE um so i i do think that you know like it 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 is kind of difficult when you're doing it that way and you're working in 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 in, in that kind of style um but uh yeah even like when Ida Solis, right she was supposed to be like one of the most progressive people, and then she left to work for Obama, and then came back and took um, uh, Gloria Molina, she was, she, Gloria Molina was terrible, anti-immigrant, and when we were running this uh, this campaign to end to 87G in L.A., she was really hesitant and didn't, she, she voted against it, and um, so she eventually lost, and then Ila Solis took her place, which she's supposed to be a progressive, but she came here to do just the work of Obama and make things a lot worse, um, and then, you know, to try to push the priority enforcement program to replace uh, secure communities, which is essentially the same thing, if not worse. Um, and nobody questioned her, nobody touched her, because, you know, people are scared because uh, she's supposed to be this progressive. So it's, it's I think, taking both stances that are unpopular against these, these elected officials, especially the board of supervisors. Uh, it does at least till this day, kind of remains untouched, because two of identity politics, uh, it was two things, identity politics, and she's also uh, progressive latina right um so it's pushing back against these these kind of folks and and like you said it's five people for 10 million people in la county it's they hold a lot of power um so yeah like it's it's very difficult i think when it comes down to it you you saw it play out a lot with the la justice fund because, uh, like,
0: essentially there is when Hilda Solis was coming out, it was like, oh, the multicultural liberalism is the way to go, but yet she was, like, carving out folks that should not be receiving those funds to get legal services, uh, even though they were, uh, she was also claiming that all undocumented immigrants deserve some some type of defense against the federal government. So it, it, you, it was very hypocritical of her.
1: Yeah, they, they did drop the ball when it came down to the, um, uh, what's it called, the uh, the universal representation for immigrants. Um, uh, the yeah, it's not from, very universal yeah. when you yeah. know
3: certain people are excluded from it. And to your point, Luis, I mean, I think this is in a lot of ways, you know, an extension of their relationship with the Obama administration and its, you know, immigration policies. You know, I, mean, I imagine some of our listeners are pretty aware of the fact that you know a lot of the you know, ramping up of immigration enforcement really started under the Obama administration. And, you know, the the rhetoric that Donald Trump uses in a, you know, much more aggressive uh, manner about, you know, good immigrants, bad immigrants. I mean, I'm sure his bad immigrants uh, 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 column is is a lot more full but you know that you always had from the Obama administration this you know uh, separation of like you know the people who are like just working hard and like just trying to make it in America and the people who are violent dangerous criminals right um, but if you have a broader context and understanding of how the you know criminal legal system in this country works and the way that gang databases work and the way that predictive policing and racial profiling work you know certain many many people are put in that category who just don't deserve to be and and just the idea that you know just based on that kind of like criminal legal history that you are somehow you know uh, your rights are vacated and your ability to have an attorney represent you in court is just like how can you call that a progressive policy like that's just yeah. ludicrous
1: yeah and i think like you know obama just used a softer rhetoric um you know i think trump said like you know we don't want Rapist here, or, or whatever, but Obama said it pretty much a lot softer. What she said, family not felons, right? So, yeah, when he when, when Obama said that, the, the he kind of launched that, that rhetoric against immigrants, you know, and he did that in a speech where he says, you know, uh, families not felons, and that's just the same thing Trump is kind of saying, is that Trump is saying it a lot more not nicely. Um, there's way more felons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically every family has a felon. <laughs> yeah, so so Obama did say that and Obama, you know, he he had that was a that's when everything kind of started ramp, ramping up after he, he made that speech and and declared that declared that war on felons. And like I was saying earlier like, you know, felon is just another label to criminalize people and keep people away from resources, from voting, um for, you know, even like getting locked up. We had like the three strikes law at some point, and these are ways that we're separating families as well, right, so if, if we're not doing it through the immigration system, we're doing it through the criminal justice system. And the, that's the, the, the way that I've been organizing with immigration for the last several years is to not keep separate them separate, but kind of in, under the same, because uh, they're both part of the same issue, you know. They're part of the criminal justice system, and right now the problem is that we have two s- systems uh, working separately. Um, and none of them are held accountable, and there's no, no accountability for any of them yeah.
2: um just touching really quickly on something um I think before we move on to to making the connection with the olympics uh just just to um tie in the the overlap with our you know Uh, very very uh, unjust criminal justice system Um, and also you had mentioned for the County Board of Supervisors that they oversee the Sheriff's Department I just wanted to briefly touch on or see if anyone wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about the federal lawsuit uh, against the Sheriff's Department and illegally collaborating with ice
3: Yeah. So, I mean this was a a ruling that came down in uh, February of this year Uh, it kind of flew under the radar just a little bit Um, But, you know, basically one of the mechanisms, one of the tools that um, ICE and the Federal Immigration Enforcement, which, you know, as Luis mentioned, you know, kind of supersedes any of these like attempts at, you know, initiating sanctuary policy at the state and local level. Uh, one of the tools that they use is these immigration detainers, right? So what they'll do is, you know, if somebody's a suspected non-citizen and they're being held by the LA Sheriff's Department for, you know, one reason or another uh, for violating some quality of life crime or you know whatever pretext that they use to get these people uh, uh, to get these you know folks in um, detention, um, ICE can you know dictate to the sheriff's department that they be held for 48 hours even after they're released from uh, the sheriff's department's detention um, to basically be held until ice or some kind of federal immigration authority can come in determine their citizenship status and then get them into the system of deportation which you know uh, folks who've been through it you know who do immigrant organizing here in la can tell you is it's a Byzantine nightmare of like like Kafkaesque you know levels of, of ridiculousness. Um, but so this federal judge ruled back in February that the sheriff's department was actually violating uh, Fourth Amendment rights of individuals, um, saying they were held too long, they were denied bail, that there was you know lack of evidence, um, and that you know basically arguing that the Fourth Amendment, gives protection to you no matter what your immigration status is in the United States, that you have the same, you know, basic rights against legal search and seizure, against arbitrary arrest. Um, And so this federal judge ruled that, you know, ICE and LA Sheriff's Department basically unlawfully detained, you know, thousands of people who were suspected of being illegal immigrants um, with these requests that the federal judge was arguing was unconstitutional, um, you know, specifically with this 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 policy of, of immigration detainers. Um, so, you know, that's a really important, you know, thing that's coming down from the, the federal level, from at least for the federal uh, uh, judiciary. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it, and it also exposes the ways that despite all of these efforts at creating sanctuary policy, the, you know, all of our policing apparatus are still deeply embedded with this system and are, you know, collaborating with it, even if they've been, if they're, they're waving their hands and saying there's nothing we can do.
2: Yeah. So I think on that note, so just establishing that, um, you know, to recap, L.A. is not a sanctuary city, um, either in, from any legal technical standpoint or even really in any spirit. Um, and that a lot of that is due to the the overlap and kind of collaboration between um between ICE, between various immigration, immigration enforcement agencies and federal agencies and local agencies, that that's kind of already you know, our starting point. Um, and so then, transitioning into how you know, how the Olympics will exacerbate this, why, does, why are we talking about this in the context of the Olympics? Um, and first I want to start off, and I'm thinking, Steve, maybe if you want to take this one, just looking at the history of how the Olympics generally ramp up police militarization.
1: Can
3: I jump before you... Yeah, so so as far as, you know, the the history of the Olympics and, you know, any kind of, like, major mega event, like something like the World Cup or, um, you know, these... They have a a history of expanding police surveillance, you know, just kind of across the board. And, you know, as, as Louise said, and as we've been kind of saying throughout this discussion, you know, this, you can't separate immigration from, you know, just the police apparatus, you know, and all of its, you know, iterations. And so, you know, whenever you have an event like this, that's an international marquee event that has a lot of, you know, attention on it and, and, you know, many international travelers and a whole bunch of wealthy people, you know, you're going to have this, need to create basically like a paramilitary lockdown of the entire area that the uh, event is happening. Um, you know, more recently, you know, uh, London, you know, in 2012, when the Olympics were there, um, you know, we saw a, a massive expansion of, of the surveillance state in London. I mean, London's pretty famous right now for having like closed circuit television cameras all over the city. And a lot of that stuff came with the 2020 2012 games, Um, you had, you know, sniper nests just like right on top of buildings uh, throughout the city. Um, And so, you know, just this and these tools don't go away once they're brought into the city. They're just, you know, once they get their toys open, they're not going to put them away. And the London chief of police actually explicitly said just that, that once we get these things that they're sticking around. Um, you know, part of the legacy of the 84 games here in Los Angeles, you know, despite the fact that it's looked on with, you know, rose colored glasses by many of the people in the city, um, you know, was quite devastating in terms of its police militarization. You had entire neighborhoods around the LA Coliseum in South LA that were, you know, effectively on lockdown that you basically had to show your papers in order to access your own neighborhood. Um, and then you also had these massive sweeps of, you know, uh, black and brown youth who many of which were you know suspected of being involved in gangs and um, you know paddy wagons full of people just getting uh, you know rounded up and effectively held through the duration of the games themselves um and you know another recent example you know we had the super bowl in minneapolis you know we saw a lot of pictures on social media of you know uh, humvees and you know police tanks and things on the streets and um you know you get this this um, big perimeter that's established, and 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 again, this is an example of you know this deadly exchange of you know military equipment that comes to local police departments from the federal government, and then you know their coordinating authority when an event like this takes place. You know, it just it just is a further example of how these systems are inextricably tied to one another and you know they're continually expanding their influence on one another and you know kind of blurring the lines between you know um, militarized surveillance uh, security apparatus and the local government and local law enforcement
2: um, that's great. Thank you, Steve. I think the one thing I would just add to that, too, is I think something we've seen we're seeing this happen in Tokyo right now is that the Olympics, in addition to creating kind of the Uh, expanded funding for a lot of this, you know, militarization and expansion of surveillance and bringing in of new toys and training um, is that it also kind of culturally normalizes a lot of things that feel like under different circumstances people would be freaked out by them. Um, But in the context of something like, you know, the Olympics in particular, like We've been seeing a lot of headlines recently about how uh, Japan is introducing a lot of uh, like super high tech uh, surveillance, in particular facial recognition. Um, But it's being pitched and sort of sold to the city as this is something we need to start implementing now so that we've perfected it in time for the Olympics. Um, They're doing a lot of uh, like you know, bringing in a lot of also um, additional like riot police and doing a lot of training like tactical training drills uh, again, and they're sort of normalizing that by saying we need to be doing this stuff now in 2018 so that we're ready in two years for the Olympics in case there are riots and kind of using this um, you know the specter of the games to to kind of both like, both pitch for the funding, but then also sell it to the city and sell it to the residents as something that is going to be good for the city as opposed to something that is going to be weaponized against them. Um, so, moving on from that context, too, you know, so the LA, so Olympics in general across the world used as a pretext to expand militarization and surveillance and kind of, you know, establish a new normal of policing and criminalization within cities. Um, so that's true from a base, but in particular, we are concerned about Los Angeles hosting the 2028 Olympics because they would be designated a national special security event. And I'll just talk for a couple minutes about what that means and the history of that, and then we can get into to talking a little bit more about how that um, intersects with our already uh, you know, very fragile you know, context in LA for immigrants and immigration justice. So an NSSE is a national special security event, which is defined as, and I'm putting this in scare quotes, an event of national or international significance deemed by the United States Department of Homeland Security to be a potential target for terrorism or other criminal activity. Um, I'm going to pause and note there. This is sort of uh, an opportunity to note that the Olympics are actually not historically a target for terrorism. Uh, there have been sort of two high-profile attacks uh, in the last century: one, the one in Munich, uh, and then the one in Atlanta in 1996. But other than that, the deadliest Olympic games were actually in Mexico City in 1968, and that was, uh, you know, that was thousands of protesters were killed at the hands of police. So, the reality is the Olympic games are, are dangerous, yes. We would agree with that. There is a body count that comes with the Olympics. The Olympics are a target for violence, but not from the standpoint of foreign terrorism, but from the standpoint of residents of the host city at the hands of police.
3: What a surprise that the people with the largest amount of weapons at the Olympics are the ones that are responsible for the most amount of violence.
2: <laughs> yeah, weird how that works out. Um, so the NSSE as a designation was originally established by Bill Clinton in 1998. So again, tying back to this, uh, you know, the progressive Democratic establishment, this was something that was created under a you know quote unquote progressive Democrat uh, who established the foundation for then George W. Bush to expand it after September 11th and put it under the jurisdiction of Homeland Security. And so that basically um, meant that now the NSSE covers a lot more events than it used to. So other NSSE events include the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, State of the Union, um, certain UN General Assembly meetings, certain state funerals, uh, the Oscars are a national special security event, and so are the Grammys. <laughs> so, right, so we have them sometimes in LA already. Well, Cardi uh,
3: B is a high-value target, so
2: <laughs> and <laughs> then uh, and then also the Super Bowl. Um, the Olympics, you know, one thing that we just want to point out is that the Olympics are different from other NSSEs um, because they are a longer duration. So if you look at the Olympics are really six weeks because they include the Paralympics, right? So it's like three weeks for the Olympics and then the Paralympics as well. Um, there's a much longer planning period from when the host city is named to when the games are actually hosted. In our case, it's 10 years. Uh, and it's a much bigger footprint, right? So it's like the Super Bowl is at one venue. Um, the LA 2028 Olympics basically encompassed the entire of LA, the entirety of LA County, uh, and even I think some of Orange County as well. So that would be the jurisdiction of the, the NSSE. Um, there's been one other Olympic Games that was in NSSE, which was Salt Lake City in 2002. Steve, you want to tell us a little bit about what happened in Salt Lake City?
3: Well, yeah, uh, the Salt Lake City games, which, uh, you know, is also another example of ways that politicians use the games as a feather in their cap. This was a big one for Mitt Romney. Um, so this was the first Olympic Games held in the United States after the September 11th attacks. And so obviously designated an NSSE. And we li- there were literally more troops on the ground in Salt Lake City, Utah for those games than there were in Afghanistan at the time. Um, the U.S. had just declared uh, war and just invaded um, but they, there were more troops on the ground there than there were on foreign soil in a war that the United States was actively engaged in, um, which you know, take a breath on that one for a second. Uh, and then another thing that came out after that was that um, you know a whistleblower from uh, within the NSA uh, who had since uh, left his position. Um, claimed that, you know, and probably with good authority that there was blanket surveillance happening in the city of Salt Lake uh, uh, during the games. Um, You know, obviously we know, you know, in the wake of the Snowden revelations and, and, you know, uh, the world as it stands now that this kind of mass surveillance by the NSA is, you know, pretty pervasive. Um, But to know that they had the capability to do it locally because of this designation and because of their presence on the ground and that they were just sweeping up data in the city, um, you know, it should raise some alarms for people who are concerned about privacy and trying to protect the rights of, uh, you know, anybody, uh, uh, especially so vulnerable populations like uh, those who are here with uh, undocumented
1: we're not gonna boycott the World Cup, are we? <laughs> <laughs> we have, that's you know, that's yeah. a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but
2: um, I don't know. <laughs> sort of want that. Um, I'll note too. We can put this in the show notes that we're not opposed to international sporting, uh, you know, competitions as a ruler in theory. And a lot of us love sports, love playing sports, love watching sports, respect athletes. We're doing a whole podcast later on on athlete exploitation and how athletes are really like. Over and oppressed by these, you know, by like FIFA and the IOC. Um, but anyway, so yeah, to to follow up, another big concern with NSSEs is um, because they're under the jurisdiction of federal agencies. Um, this is something that has come up from the the olympic budgeting standpoint is garcetti and the bid committee you know they've sold the la 2028 olympics as a very like fiscally conservative games right and one of the reasons that they're able to do this um garcetti has kind of um pitched this aspect as like a budgeting move is that the federal government is paying the bill for security which is typically, as you know, Steve was mentioning, um, because security becomes so expanded and militarized. This was a big sort of scandal and issue in London was how much they spent on security, uh, you know. Basically, that's one of the things that can frequently like lead the Olympics to go massively over budget is the amount of money that's spent on security and policing. So one of Garcetti's claims is that because the federal government is covering the bill for policing, um, you know, it's good for LA, right? because it's that means that the that the um, budget is more likely to stay kind of contained. Um, that's a very, you know, cynical, I wouldn't even say it's Pollyanna-ish, because obviously he knows better, but obviously the federal government um, isn't giving LA this for nothing, right? Uh, And this is kind of what ties into, Garcetti has referred to Trump, uh, and Garcetti and Casey Wasserman, who's the chair of the bid committee, uh, referred to Trump at kind of the like press conference for LA receiving the 2028 bid as a true partner in getting the games. And that's where we we see this coming in, right? Is the the collaboration between federal and local law enforcement agencies?
1: Yeah, and they're also using the excuse that there's gonna be no new stadiums built. Mm-hmm. Um, they're gonna use the existing stadiums, especially because there's like, several new ones popping up in the next. Um, I mean, there's the football stadium, and there's the one that soccer stadium just built. So they're gonna just use those. I suppose like in a lot of Olympics, they have built for it, and then after to do nothing else with.
2: Yeah, and that's like a whole other conversation yeah, too yeah. is the question of like, well, what does it mean if they're they're just building these stadiums but they say it's not for the Olympics, they say it's for something else, and like where, yeah, how does that work? But um, you know, that's something that we've taken a lot of issue with. Is Garcetti framing this, uh, the federal government paying for security, as a budgeting measure as opposed to something that actually also has like political value for the federal government? And um, so yeah, that's it's,
3: it's pretty, you know, it's it's pretty shocking too because it's just like this, you know, political sleight of hand where you have you know people like Garcetti trying to pretend like they're this tip of the spear as the resistance against Trump, and you know we're not we're going to protect our uh, immigrant communities and. We're we're going to keep families together and then like you're literally like having to coordinate with those federal authorities that you're claiming to be against so that you can have your your big vanity project win the Olympics
2: right like. And that's in our minds too another possible reason that Garcetti has been reluctant to declare LA a sanctuary city. Um, you know, you'll notice on Twitter uh, and other platforms Garcetti has a lot of insulting things to say about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump has never once clapped back at Eric Garcetti. Um, and I uh, I would venture to guess that one of those reasons is that Eric Garcetti, you know, says Talks shit about him on Twitter, but cooperates with him on the ground. Has met with him in person, I think, at least three times about the Olympics and about getting federal funding for security and transit.
1: And that's like the problem, right? Like, our democracy is like controlled, controlled opposition, which is like what we have uh, with these Democrats. Who like and it's easy to talk shit against Trump. It's cool, you know, like everyone's doing it. But you know, when a, one of one of one of their players is up there, like Obama or, or somebody else nobody really does it. And when they do, they suffer consequences. Um, like Luis Gutierrez did um, when he was calling Obama out for yeah. a while, he got put back in his seat right away. Um, not, not praising Luis Gutierrez, he's terrible in his own way, but uh, like, yeah, but it's easy to do that, right? And I think like, I all these Democrats act all bold. Same shit happened with Bush I was in office. They were talking anti-war, all this cool shit. And like, now, you know, one of the team members goes up and they're like, oh, cool. I mean they still and they still have a respectable working relationship with the federal government, like you said. So they're not trying to really get rid of Trump. They're still working with Trump. So it's and that's what makes it so hard to organize f- with for immigrant justice in LA. Um,
2: Right. They're also, like you know, it's been interesting too to see, um, you know, one of the the bid committee members, um, Maria Elena Durazo, who's now running for Senate and her her state, B- Senate. state Senate, right? Yeah, and her um, you know, her campaign slogan I think is kind of it's like, or her campaign messaging has been very anti-Trump, but she's also on the bid committee and one of the people who was involved in creating the situation that mandates direct cooperation with the federal government.
1: And she's kind of like praised as like a leader in the union movement, I think, and as someone who's progressive. Which well, I think it says a lot about the labor movement
0: um, in the U.S. that actively collaborates with the capitalists. Mm-hmm. I think that unlike any other country, we have a very weak labor movement that's willing to sell out for short-term gains. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to see this more in the long term. but. I find it interesting that you're talking about militarization of the state and, and the immigration work that we do, we're seeing like no longer getting public services as, as in the long run, and then also the privatization of public education that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things are beginning to collide, um, and in a lot of ways it's going to change the political dynamics of the city. This re- LA is really like the the testing lab for what could be in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it with the prisons in the 80s, and it's it's um, what we see today, and we're gonna see it with the the Olympics.
1: And we see it with immigration, too. This is where PEP, the priority enforcement program, got got tested on um, before they distributed out to the rest of the country. Um, yeah, and, and the labor movement is, you know, it's been co-opted by Democrats, and just, it's like another arm of the nonprofit industrial complex. And it's this why it's so difficult to run elections. <laughs> if you want to run with progressive candidates, it's really hard without support of the unions and and the unions have their own splits, you know. You have like the nationals, you know, for example, when they endorsed Hillary, SCIU did, but a lot of the locals were not. So th- the labor movement is definitely you know, I think we got in trouble once for when we were part of this, uh, doing some immigrant justice uh, organization, I was part of the California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance and we got in trouble for calling out the, uh, uh, what's it called, the AFL-CIO? Because border patrols in one of their, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Board, their, border patrols part of the their, their, their union. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and we kind of t- kind of told the AFL-CIO to kick him out because, yeah. <laughs> because they, they uh, the border patrol endorsed uh, Trump. And agencies are not really allowed to endorse candidates, so we were like we kind of called out the uh, AFL-CIO and didn't go well. <laughs> but yeah, they're union; they're part of the they're part of a, a union, like a a subunion of uh, the AFL-CIO. So it's interesting about the labor movement is so detached because you know they advocate for workers' rights and people need jobs, but a lot of the time they keep the the jobs they're advocating for, are there, there's no need for or they're just police and we need to get rid of police. And it's it's a whole other conversation about, like, you know, how do we... There's obviously jobs and businesses that are going... Uh, and trades that are going out of, you know, that we don't need anymore because of the environment or because of, of other reasons. So this is why socialism is key in all the situations, because instead of telling people we're going to get your job back or we're going to keep your job, like, we should be like, here's some fucking money, go chill out your job isn't existing anymore, I'm sorry, or, or we're gonna train you to do this other job, and you're gonna get hired doing this, you know? So the labor movement is another, other, other, it's a non-profit industrial complex, the labor movement, and it's the system as a whole, you know? I mean, they're all part of the same.
2: Um, so, I what I wanna do now is uh, I, Basically all of the, the sort of more detailed information we have about the NSSE um, we have comes from the California Legislative Analyst Office's report and analysis of the LA24 bid. Uh, and budget, um, something that we like to note as often as we can, is that there is no official bid package or budget for LA Twenty Twenty Eight. Um, when they made the backroom deal with the when Garcetti and Casey Wasserman made the backroom deal with the IOC to accept. Uh, 2028 20, instead of 2024. 20, they essentially just crossed out 24 <laughs> instead of 28. and Fine, then th-
3: Find and replace. It's yeah, re- exactly. it's really easy. You just, de- yeah. city
2: council just sort of rubber stamped it. That was one of the things that kind of, um, Flipped a lot of the more like centrist uh, folks and reporters from the LA Times in particular that we had been talking to is that there was a lot of trust in Garcetti and the bid committee because they were like, oh, it's a very fiscally conservative bid and like that's all they really care about. And then when they realized that city council was. Um, was not only prepared but like fully intended to vote unanimously on a, a contract that had no budget attached to it whatsoever and had not been planned for or studied they that's flipped a lot of people out um, but, so all of our information comes from this report and that's just something I want to flag too because we've been trying to track down further information and um, we have not been able to. I can go into some of the questions we have in a bit. But what I want to do is read some of the quotes from this report and then we can maybe talk about like, what does this mean? Why, why does this raise a red flag? Um, Okay. So I'm going to start. So LA 2024's bid documents envision a security command structure called the California Olympic and Paralympic Public Safety Command, uh, which breaks down to COPS. That would include local, state, and federal agencies similar to the unified command established in Utah during the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. Discuss.
3: Yeah, right. It's word salad, um, <laughs> and and it's great, you know, that the acronym just isn't hiding anything. I mean, it's just straight cops, right? Um, you know. I mean, obviously, if they want to model this after after Utah, I guess we can expect expect to have uh, as many troops on the ground as we have in the various theaters of war that we're at right now in the Middle East. Uh, and you know, one of the things that like really kind of terrifies me about the twenty twenty eight games in terms of like the the, the technological um, aspect of it that's going to be employed by you know this special Paralympic Public Safety Command, whatever, um, is you know. Talking about that blanket surveillance that the NSA was doing in twenty in two thousand two, we know for a fact that LAPD is uh, to despite public outcry um, launching a, a, a a drone program um you know and who knows what those drones are going to be used you know they promise us that they're not going to be used in any way for um you know uh, with weapons or anything like that but it's hard not to envision the sole purpose of these devices at least from the outset is going to be for surveillance um and it should also be noted that one of the new sponsors for uh, the olympic games since mcdonald's pulled out early uh, is intel Uh, And Intel is uh, very involved in um, the drone uh, research and and implementation. And they love to brag about how they're used for uh, flying in formation for cool stuff at like, uh, uh, you know, opening ceremonies and things like that. But again, hard to imagine that these technologies are not going to be used uh, for surveillance uh, during this, you know, security command structure. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And that phrase, um, unified command. How do we feel about that?
0: I mean, it, it sounds like uh, the federal government is essentially taking over the LAPD. Mm.
2: Um. Um, okay, and that leads me into the next quote, which is um, DHS, so the Department of Homeland Security, and this is from the report, this is their own like way of describing DHS. So it's DHS, which includes the Secret Service, would manage coordination of all federal, state, and local agencies. I'll just flag notably that they do not include in those parentheses that DHS includes ICE.
3: Yeah, and folks might not know this, but like um, DHS actually employs more federal law enforcement agents than any other. Uh, coordinating authority at the federal government level. They have more law enforcement agents than the FBI. Um, And yeah, there's there are many departments that are under the jurisdiction of Department of Homeland Security. And one of those most notable ones being ICE. Uh, And obviously we've seen, you know, ICE has become the target of a lot of ire. It has been the target of a lot of ire from the immigration justice community for a long time. It has now become much more politically fashionable to be able to say abolish ICE now that you know phrase has been uh, in some ways co-opted by some of the progressive democrats who are trying to you know use its momentum to catapult themselves um but yeah that's that's a troubling thing that is not disclosed and that we've been trying to press um the bid committee and the press to talk about um and it's just no one seems to care (laughs) other than the folks who are doing this work on the ground
1: yeah, and to be fair, like, DHS already controls a lot of the aspects of our law enforcement culture in America, so it's, I don't know, like, it's not in writing, but it's already happening. Um, yeah, DHS oversees a lot of the law enforcement in America already, and which is uh, really hard to, you know, get rid of ICE and all that stuff and, and stop police and ICE collaboration is because DHS has a stronghold on a lot of our local law enforcement.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think that's something across the board with, um... Yeah, you know, with this campaign and coalition and our platform that we've been emphasizing is, you know, we don't think the Olympics create militarization. We don't think they create displacement and gentrification. They just kind of, um, you know, throw kerosene or gasoline onto an already, you know, burning building. Um, so, you know, coordination between DHS and LAPD and LASD is already happening. Um, it's just imagining what does that mean when you put that in sort of. Writing like this to say the Department of Homeland Security is now in charge officially of yeah. these other agencies for an uncertain period of time.
1: Yeah, I think that was, you know, a lot of issues with some of the SP 54 writing too, when they were talking about police and ICE collaboration. They were like, you know, they were trying to prevent, but it was like, it's already happening. Uh, it's, it's just it makes it they put it into writing. They makes it okay, right? Yeah, some parts of the uh, the SB fifty four, the sanctuary bill did that as well. You know that they, they kind of okay communicating certain aspects. Um, and before you had like an argument against it, cause like it's legal, but now it's like legal. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, it was like a law. Like I think it was a trust act, and there was a um, the what's the law? I forgot. It's a trust act and. the. It was another bill after that. I forgot what it's called. Uh, Trust Act 2.0. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I forget. We had like different names for it, and it has a real name now. But you know, when these laws passed in California, um, it made it illegal for certain things to happen, and you, and you could bring lawyers and bring lawsuits. But now, you know, like right now, we could do that. But making it okay in writing prevents that from from having us from having that upper hand.
2: Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, okay. So last quote. In total, the U.S. government would devote thousands of its personnel and potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of support to a Los Angeles games. That support, I'm putting that in my own scare quotes, would encompass years of planning and threat assessment aimed at keeping Los Angeles safe during the games.
3: Years of planning. How wonderfully not specific. Uh, <laughs> obviously, we've got ten years between the uh, you know the signing of the host city contract and when these games actually happen. So, like, how many years of uh, that planning and threat assessment is going to take place? It's kind of hard to say, right? Um, so, you know, and I think another thing that's interesting to note is that a lot of the politicians who are responsible for authorizing these games to come to Los Angeles. Are not going to be in office in order to manage any of this, um, you know, coordinating. Um, so you know, take that for what you will. Um, but uh, I think it's also kind of funny that they say uh, potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars because the price tag that we've seen for the federal government security estimation for this is like 5.4 billion dollars, I believe, um, which is you know not hard to imagine. I mean, you know, it's a big city uh, and weapons cost a lot of money.
0: It's interesting that it's framed around the concept of bringing in jobs. And that's a big attraction to a lot of the labor unions, um, which is a real, it's a real shortfall of the labor movement of seeing there are bad jobs that we shouldn't be trying to create. um, But they don't recognize it like that. Um, which gets to sort of the second point that Luis was hinting at is that like liberals really see like oh it's written in paper it, it it's over but really the the crucial component that's almost never looked at is one either implementation or two the sort of the the sort of capital behind the push for establishing these the infrastructure that remains after the um, the Olympics go, those jobs are most likely going to stay up for a couple more years afterwards, or they will go away and ultimately it'll hurt the same workers who wanted those union jobs.
1: Yeah, and most of these jobs being produced, like there was like a horizon in jobs under Obama, but they're like different, def- definitely jobs that are not kind of support, like kind of be able to pay the bills. They're low paying jobs that they, they, they don't really. Yeah, they're not like big wages where you could pay rent, especially in a city like LA where rent's getting really expensive, right?
2: Um that's also one of the potential, you know, downsides or counter arguments to Garcetti saying that this is a no build Olympics is Garcetti can't even make the claim that the Olympics will bring in those types of jobs at other and you know, the thing I will point out there is when other cities have made that promise, typically what happens is actually um is that You know, it just really creates an influx and demand for cheap labor, uh, and it's and typically Olympic games and the people who are in charge of them are very hostile to organized labor. There was a lot of uh, protests in Brazil around that. There was a big scandal, actually, around security in around the London games because there was a commitment to award certain contracts to you know, and again, these are not the kinds of good jobs that we're fighting for, employees that we're fighting for, but to. Public employees for security, and then those contracts were awarded to a a private security company run by Teresa May's, uh, like I think it was like a family member or like friend of her husband's or something. Um, so the reality is, is you know, yeah, there is no like good job market that comes with the Olympics, and the the people who get exploited are the same people who are going to be displaced, or the same people who are going to be targeted by. Um, you know, by the enhanced security and surveillance.
3: Yeah, I think if there's, like, one lesson that listeners take away from this series of podcasts is that, like, the Olympics, in a lot of ways, is just, like, the world's biggest grift. <laughs> like, basically every claim that is made about the games, uh, it turns out to be false uh, once you start to barely scratch the surface of it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, the last question I, I sort of want to raise, so Steve already mentioned one of the big things we've been sort of focused on with the NSSC is that that timeline is when does it go into effect? because we know just from looking at past Olympics and just also from common sense you know Department of Homeland Security is not going to show up the day before the opening ceremonies to coordinate. that's going to go into advance you know, go into effect well in advance of the games but for how long you know does that start now? Does that start in two years? when do they officially get the keys to the LAPD. Uh, and then the other question, and this is you, you know this is just mo- mostly something we've been poking at to point out that nobody will tell us, uh, which is that what level of access will DHS have? You know, what, what is the exact level um, of access and collaboration and coordination that this mandates or that this puts into writing for them to legally do? the official party line that we've gotten from the city and from the bid committee is that we shouldn't worry about the nsse because it won't change how lapd works with federal uh, law enforcement and works with ice
3: which as we talked about today is already perfect it's great now yeah like why why mess with that <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that that's a concern that we have um and have been talking about but uh yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of questions. There are more there are more questions and concerns and red flags than there are answers right now. And I think I think how you look at these statements probably depends on how you see the context of um, of immigration justice and enforcement in LA right now, and how much you trust some of these figures already. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: think that's a it's an apt uh, assessment.
2: Well, I guess so. I want to wrap us up um, by just talking about so to not to not end on as. Um, as much of a downer note, what can we do? So, as leaders of um, you know immigration justice organizing within DSALA and within the city of Los Angeles, what can we do to support um, you know furthering immigration justice in LA?
0: Well, I think the the most interesting fact of this, and we haven't really talked about, is that Los Angeles really is an immigrant working class. That that's the one of the biggest populations that sort of drives the city. Um, and so the work that we do as co-chair at, um, in JC is uh, focusing around the relationship of immigration justice to the greater uh, development of a working class politics. Um, so I would say join Immigration Justice Committee to help us build a long-term campaign. Um, and we do a lot of collaboration with the different committees in the SILA and currently we're beginning the community forum a spanish language community forum um, possibly in san fernando valley and so if you're interested in helping us uh, create that it would be making the connections between immigration justice and uh, housing which are both related to the to the olympics coming and how the city does not want to provide the housing or and and will allow the deportations to continue, in order to make space for folks who will come and visit the city temporarily, and then leave um, the city.
1: Yeah, you know, aside from joining your local organizations like you know immigrant justice committee, I think we I think we have to create like you know uh, multi struggle movement between working class immigrants and working class people. Uh, there's still like a very huge divide between immigrants of color and people of color who are working class in the community, um, you know, it's the way they kind of design things to pin us against each other. Um, but, you know, it's going to, the thing is like, you know, this, guy like I was mentioning earlier, is not like an issue that's separate from all the struggles. I think for a while, a lot of nonprofits have been co-opting immigration and working with Democrats and Immigration has been like the, the hardest thing to organize around with uh, because it's very liberal, it's very liberal co-opted and, and it's, it's a political strategy for, you know, for elections and, and for politicians to get into office. Same, same, same thing with labor, you know? Um, so I think seeing, creating an immigrant justice movement that centers, you know, prison evolution uh, border, border abolition and, 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 and working class solidarity is like how we're gonna be able to get things done. I, I think as long as we're working separately, um, we're, we're, we're just kind of like stepping over each other's work. And I think that happens a lot, especially with immigrant immigrant rights, has a history of being super anti-black and anti-criminal um, where you know, they'll throw people under the bus for some rights and some papers, but we gotta like think of the long-term strategy of how to not screw each other over and be in solidarity with one another instead of stepping on each other.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've we've mentioned this several times today, and, you know, I think the fact that we, you know, talked about, you know, labor, despite the fact that, you know, this is a focus on immigration, just kind of really demonstrates how how connected all of this stuff is, right? Like, you just, you cannot separate... You know the struggle against um you know uh, police and prisons from the struggle for immigration justice and you can't separate that from the struggle for you know to fight back gentrification and displacement because of the ways that these same apparatus are used weaponized against You know immigrants working people people of color to extract them from their neighborhoods you know via you know law enforcement methods and then have an influx of like you know white wealthy folks move in so like yeah all this stuff is it's all tied together and the more that we can like you know, look at things from like a more, you know, socialist uh, lens and really have all these things be, you know, rooted in a critique of capitalism and the way that, you know, you know, all of these problems intersect as a result of capitalism, then, you know, then we can really start to build like that working class solidarity and like all work together on like all these really, you know. you know, interwoven uh, problems. And, and I think, you know, the Olympics is a great focus for that because the Olympics is just, like, the perfect example of, like, the capitalist con, right? That, like, you know, and that they get to be international and not necessarily have borders and bring people together, but, like, really it's just about making a bunch of money for people who already have a bunch of money at the expense of people who don't. Um, and that's,
1: that's the argument, right? Money travels without borders, like, <laughs> right? Money travels easy... And I, you know, over borders.
2: Right. And the IOC is a great example of that. So, the IOC you were asking earlier um, is the International Olympics Committee, um, and they are the group of um, high class grifters and oligarchs, and they are headquartered in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is a notorious tax haven, um, perfect for, you know, stashing your Nazi gold, or, you know, they're completely unaccountable. To anybody, uh, and so their, you know, billion dollars can travel without you know without any oversight, essentially. Whereas a person who's living and working in Los Angeles um, might have to, as Steve was mentioning, show ID to get into their own house. Yeah,
0: it it is interesting that um, in framing it that way, we're really asking ourselves like, wh- whose city this is, and um, it. where it's essentially forcing us to not begin to continue or, or not continuing to organize around single issue kind of politics. And it's really forcing the different groups to come together um, because if that doesn't happen, it really the left and the working class will, will fail to um, overcome what's coming in terms of the Olympics. Um, so we, we really have a lot of work to do And the the left hasn't really had a historical um, strong analysis when it comes to immigration and I think that's largely because it's sort of been blinded as an identity issue but it's really a working-class issue Mm -hmm. and it's always been a working-class issue um, because um, our nationally the US the working class has been cut in two ways and it's one way it's that fact that Um, So many of our uh, black and brown folks are in prisons, and when they come out, they are unable to work, Mm -hmm. and undocumented workers are coming in, and they don't have the papers, but they are in fact working. And so these two uh, groups together form about basically half of the class. Um, And if we're unable to bring all of these things together, then there's no way that we can begin to sort of uh, flip the tides.
1: Yeah, and I think we gotta start looking at immigration. as a, you know, uh, intersectional, uh, I hate using that word intersectional, but intersectional, and and you know, as a, the immigration, the, the reason why immigration is also so tough, because it has every type of struggle in it, you know, outside of the working class struggle, everything's in there. There's gender, justice in immigration, the, there's working class struggle in immigration, you know, there's student rights, student movements in immigration. Labor, like we said. Uh, yeah, housing labor, justice. housing justice, um, so everything's packed in it, you know, and we got to look at it from a way, a standpoint of like popular education and, and like and getting to like the, the issues. Right. Like, you know, for example, in L.A., you know, how did the MS get started? Right. It was through deporting people to a country and they got to do what they want over there. Same thing here. You know, we're criminalizing people or especially gang members and we're pushing gangs through the gang junctions, we're pushing them out through the to the IE, to Palmdale, to the areas where especially immigrants too are getting displaced where there's the sheriff's department that's relentless and like doesn't give a fuck. And they're they're having their own struggle over there now, you know? So a lot of the fight is moving from the inner cities to the the outskirts of LA now where sheriffs are races, openly races, they don't care. Um, so, you know, we're we're not fixing the issue. We're just pushing it aside and I think once you start like looking at immigration from that stand, standpoint and criminalization, we could all kind of c- c- come together and create a, a, a movement based on and more solidarity. Um, but I think it takes a lot of it takes a lot of analysis and and understanding. You know, so how do we get people to to that level?
2: great. Yeah, that's great. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, yeah, we have a lot of homework to do, a lot of work to do together, but, uh, we have 10 years, um, just in terms of the Olympics and probably the rest of our lives to work on everything else. And, um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming in and having this conversation.
1: Will there still be a United States of America in ten years?
2: <laughs> Who knows? Well, there still <laughs> be. Garcetti has <laughs> joked before we can wrap, but he's talked about um, like when we and other critics have brought up like how can you even confidently plan anything out in ten years? And he'll say like, oh, you know, it's not like like all of these venues that we have have been around for a hundred years. It's not like you know UCLA is going to disappear, but it's like actually like UCLA was on fire. You know, like, like UCLA might disappear. That's like not a funny or that's not a good rhetorical example. We're done.
3: To learn more and get involved, please visit nolympicsla.com and knock.la.